0: Hello, everybody. It is time for the November 12th, Wednesday night, Philosophy Call-In Show. Just got a couple things I want to make note of before we get running with the show. There's a new Freedom Main Radio iOS app out presently. You can search for either Freedom Main Radio or Stefan Molyneux in the App Store, and you will find it. We're working on an Android one that'll be out shortly, but the iOS app lets you go through all the podcast archives, look at the videos... And stream the show live as well. Also a reminder to rank and review the show on iTunes. That is incredibly helpful. Helps us bump up the rankings. All that good stuff. Really helps the show. Only takes a minute. Pop on iTunes and rank the show. Five stars. Give us five stars, please. <laughs> it's really helpful. And also, for your holiday shopping, if it's upcoming, we do have an Amazon affiliate link. If you go to FDRURL.com forward slash that takes you to the U.S. one. If you go to fdrurl.com forward slash Amazon CA, that takes you to the Canadian one. And if you go to fdrurl.com forward slash Amazon UK, that takes you to the UK link. uh, Yeah, those are our affiliate links. If you click through those for your Amazon purchases, hey, we get a bit of a percentage, so that definitely helps with the show expenses, helps us survive. And that is about it when it comes to announcements.
1: All right, Mikey Nucknett. Who do we have?
0: Bernard wrote in and said, according to what you said in UPB, inaction can either be moral or immoral. Clearly, this is what Steph wrote in the book, clearly if I proclaim X is the good, then the opposite of X is evil. He says, then you define non-action as the opposite of a positive action, saying, clearly if not raping is good, then raping must be evil. Conversely, if raping is good, then not raping must be evil. However, why can inaction have moral content isn't inaction by its nature morally neutral could you say that not doing evil is necessary but not sufficient
1: to be virtuous yeah i mean we've we've had this conversation in the show once before and i think uh, it's a good it's a good distinction Uh, i i want people to not take my stuff and not hit me and not kill me uh, and so on so for me I, all that I really require to live in peace with other people is for them to not initiate the use of force against me. Now, not initiating the not initiating the use of force against other people can be quite challenging for some people at times. Impulse-driven people, the criminality that is often associated, though not exclusively, with lower IQs, uh, people who have uh, significantly limited intellectual capacities, and so on. So I do think that... Um, To to refrain from initiating the use of force is really all that's needed for people to live in peace However, I would not say that that's sort of necessary but not sufficient for positive virtue Because of course as you probably know libertarianism as a whole is very interested in the non-aggression principle And of course that respect for persons and and their property and Out of the non-aggression principle comes all of the other negotiation and trade and love and all that kind of stuff that comes out of that. Those I don't think would be like a man who makes his way through life without initiating force against others, I think has lived a good life. But I would not say that that is the very highest mark of virtue because there are other virtues that are more positive, um, but not required. So um, uh, somebody who rushes to somebody else's defense, uh, you know, some old lady is being set upon by a thug or two and this guy runs in uh, moral courage to make arguments that go against the collective sentiments of the masses and so on. Those, I think, are good things. I don't think that they're virtues that relate to the non-aggression principle, but they're nice to have but not have to have. But I do think that if we could, and of course we're a long way away from that, but if we could have a society where just look at parents and children, to look at parents and children, if we could have a society or a world where parents did not initiate force or fraud against their children, I mean, Lord heaven above, great Zeus's ankle, we would have an absolutely astounding world if we could get a world where parents did not initiate force or fraud against their children. No hitting, uh, no yelling, uh, no verbal abuse, no uh, no punishments, no, you know, anything that required force or power or size or strength. And not initiating the use, uh, sorry, not initiating fraud would be not telling children things that you can't prove are true, which would be the superstitions of statism and religiosity. I mean, imagine if children were raised peacefully and not lied to. I think that would be pretty much sufficient for eradicating the need for virtue uh, because there would be nobody initiating force. Now, you may have, I guess, some temptations. If you're involved in some business contract, you might want to shave some corners or cut some costs or maybe cheat people and so on. But I think those would be very low incidence situations. So the opposite of evil I think is good and given the prevalence of of aggression and lying to children aggression to and lying to children around the world I think that we're a long way from even even achieving the basic virtues of don't aggress against or lie to your children. Does that make any sense? uh,
2: yeah I think that mostly uh, I went to regions. I didn't intend to go to with the question, but um they covered most of it. One, one reason I asked the question was that under German law, it is illegal to, or you get punished for not helping a person that you could have helped if they are in a, I don't know, life-threatening situation, I guess. So if, uh, I don't know, if somebody's drowning and you you know how to save them and if they can prove it to you, then you can go, I don't know if you can go to jail for it, but at least you can get punished for that if you don't help them. And the idea here is then basically, since they're not initiating aggression, uh, it's not immoral. Of course, I mean, you've said, talked about this before as the, well, you're a douche uh, principle, sort of. And yeah, um, but I think that just going by UPB and and the uh, non-aggression principle, it's not Immoral in a way to not save a person if you can. I mean, if you yeah, no, absolutely, it. it's
1: not. Uh, no, it's not immoral. And I mean, the the German government uh, in this is uh, entirely uh, hypocritical because uh, let's say that you saw someone, um, let's say that you saw an old lady being uh, uh, um, having her purse stolen from her by a ten year old boy, and you were like a a strapping 225-pound, six-foot-two guy. I would assume that given that the boy was unarmed and so on and you could, you know, take him uh, or at least get the woman's purse back, that under this law you would probably be not, like you would probably be guilty of not helping this woman, right, because you could do so with virtually no threat to yourself. So in other words, if you have the power to stop a theft and you don't do it, then you are uh, bad. You're breaking the law, according to this uh, if i understand it correctly well Uh, of course the reality is that uh, um, um, there's still a national debt in germany which the politicians can uh, change and reverse which they don't do so they're basically stealing from the unborn when they have the power to stop it but of course the important thing is whether you go save a drowning kid or something right
2: well in this case it's not an old lady getting her purse stolen i don't think you get punished for punished for that but Maybe if you're a doctor and somebody at the table next to you and you, uh, I don't know, chokes on something and you're like, meh, just let him, let him die. And uh continue eating, basically, and they know you're a doctor, they know you could have helped him, and, you know, you basically killed that person in, uh, in the eyes of the law because you didn't... Well, not, I don't know if it's that harsh, but I don't know, I think you might get second or third degree for that.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, I... <laughs> I think that these situations are so incredibly rare that having legislation about it is kind of pointless. Um, I don't know what it is in Germany, but certainly in America, the police have no duty to protect you at all. The the police cannot be faulted, uh, cannot be uh, sued, cannot any any of these things for failing to protect you. So for me, if the police, whose job it is to protect you, don't have any legal requirement or duty to protect you when they've pushed out every other or most other Um, competition and take your money by force if the police in america and i don't know what it is around the world elsewhere but if the police have no duty to protect you i don't see how you can push that same duty on a private citizen but these things would be so rare i mean what doctor would sit there and say well i'm right in the middle of a great conversation of course the doctor would get up and and help and these things could be uh, dealt with by the governing body but there may be some licensing body in a free society and the licensing body would have the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm and, you know, help people where you can. And um, the he may have his license revoked or withdrawn from that governing body if he doesn't, you know, help someone when it's so easy. There's so many different ways to deal with this rather than having the law uh, step in that um, I don't think it's at all necessary.
2: Well, but if you say governing body, isn't that kind of like a government or a state then if you have a – No. I don't
1: know. If you have like no, no, it's not, no,
2: or something like that, that's in a given geographical area, which would be your property. no,
1: no, 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 be... no, 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 hang on, hang on. No, it's, it's, it's just, um, and it, it would be optional, right? So if you want to be a doctor, then obviously, people would like to know. That you know what you're doing, that you're educated, and that you meet your professional standards, and that uh, you, um, you, you you keep up on your education and, and all that kind of stuff. And rather than research it themselves, which they probably wouldn't want to do, there would be a third party. Body that would certify you as having for maintained or fulfilled certain professional requirements, uh, which would be the same thing as a, a seal of approval from some consumer safety board that is voluntary but gives people peace of mind so um, no it 's not a governing governing body doesn 't mean a government it just means uh, somebody uh, some somebody of people who've uh, figured out ways to certify that people have taken particular uh, approaches or or education or maintain standards that uh, are productive for their patients Uh, seal of approval Uh, you can get like good housekeeping seal of approval uh, and so on you can get cia certified or or, uh, automobile association certified um uh, garages or garages. as they'd say in england so you can just get people who say listen these these guys have done what we think is the right stuff and um Uh, and then you you don't have to go to these people you can or you can go to people like you can go to a a psychologist or a psychiatrist or you can go to a life coach which as far as i understand it is unregulated Uh, but this doesn't have to be government at all Uh, this just has to be um, um, some group of of people who have come up with some consumer optimum way of certifying people's knowledge and skill
2: well that wasn't actually the, the direction i tried to go the thought that came originally came to mind although i kind of uh Figured that, but um, is that if you, for instance, have a I don't know what you, you call them DROs I think uh if you have like a police whatever that is that you privately pay um then they would you would grant them the well the the thought was you would grant them a monopoly of violence on your property which would then make them. Kind of like a state, but then I figured that well, they don't have a monopoly on violence since you yourself can still use it on your property. So,
1: well, no, I imagine I have no idea how all this would work. So uh, I understand this is all purely theoretical, and I'm not exactly well versed in these areas. But just off the top of my head, what I would like to see, so if there's some uh, DRO, then um, I would certainly like them to have access to my home under certain conditions. So if I call them and say, you know, I just heard a, um, I heard the window break in the basement, then I want them to come over and come into my house, right? So if I request that they come, they can come into my house. There may be other situations where, uh, you know, if if they have good reason to believe I've done some egregious harm to someone and, you know, hid the body under my couch or something, there may be circumstances under which I would sign ahead of time the conditions under which they would have access uh, to my house. And, of course, this would be as restricted, as as minimal, as humanly possible because very few people would want to say, you know, hey, if you're just down the street, you need to pee, come use my bathroom. I would have to be very... Uh, restricted. So, um, this would all sort of be worked out to be as minimally invasive as possible while still giving investigators the capacity to go in and examine uh, places where they suspect something nefarious may have occurred.
2: Okay. Well, one thing, uh, I want to ask because I mean the, the question we asked, that's quite a while actually till you get on the show. Um, There was some other parts on UPB I wanted to ask, but those kind of, I I listened to it again, so those kind of figured uh, themselves just by listening again. Um, And basically the next is a bit of practicality. Uh, There's, you know, there's a lot of ideas that I think are good. And I I thought of some ways basically that you might be able to do a DRO or similar organization uh, in the world today as a valid business model. But I just can't seem to get moving. So what I mean by that is on on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, you guys talked about basically how great it feels to be rolling in in a sense that you're working and, and, you know, you're active and you're just working a lot. It's that old saying that if you want something done, give the work to a busy man. Uh, I think you uh, I don't know if I quote you there, but uh, so and the problem is I feel very uh, stale at the moment, so I I I can't seem to get moving and just uh, so I, I have an idea how to basically uh, start something like that, but how how to I do I motivate myself to get
1: there? I don't I that motivation is not something that you squeeze out of yourself like the last piece of toothpaste motivation is something you try to ride like you're strapped to the back of a horse i mean i don't know if this this makes any sense so i'm going to keep this brief when i realized i had the opportunity to talk about philosophy to the world unedited uncensored with the topics that I care about the most, to talk to experts in the field, to talk to listeners like you, it wasn't like I thought, well, how do I motivate myself to do this? My question was, how soon can I do this? So it's not like, um, I don't know if there's something that you love to do, something that you're just passionate about doing. But you know, even if it's something like going on vacation, you some boring job, you and you say, well, how do I motivate? How do I motivate myself to go on vacation, or how do I motivate myself to play a video game? You want to play a video game. You want to go on vacation. And when it comes to motivation, I think that you uh, you have a drive, you have a passion to do something. I wrote thirty plays, hundreds of poems, six or seven novels. Uh, And barely cut paid a thin dime for any of them. I just loved to write. And um, it helped me to organize my thoughts. Uh, When I was in university, um, when I took my course on Aristotle, we were going through the metaphysics. And I paraphrased the argument and wrote voluntary essays and sat down with the philosophy professor, who was a very smart woman. And um, we went over the arguments and, and all that. I just loved it. When I got into computers, I I programmed for years before I got one thin dime for coding. And uh, I love to sing. uh, I love music. And I do all of these things because they are enjoyable to me. Now, if you don't have something that's so enjoyable to you that you have to find a way to do it, I think then you just have an idea of something that you want rather than something you actually want. Does that make any sense?
2: Well, yes, but uh, I think there is a slight difference because uh, between you and me in this case because I think you said before on, on the show that you started working when you were 10 or 11 or 12, some, somewhere around that age, and uh, working, as far as I heard, is sort of a habit. If you are used to working, then it's easy for you to to work, yeah, if that makes any sense. And uh, if you're not used to doing much or anything, because after I was done with school, before I started university, I had like a year in between where I didn't do anything. I really wasted a complete year. And now, when I try to start working again, it just doesn't doesn't work. I I just I start something, I get frustrated, and I give up. Even though I want to do it, I'm slowly forcing myself to do more of it to basically get a habit of working on the things I don't like also. It's just, I can't even motivate myself to do the things I love to do two years ago. Like there were things I, you no, know, like,
1: no, 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 come on. No, come on. <laughs> you don't have to be motivated to do the things you love to do. Right. Everything that you love to do has a lot of stuff in it that you don't like to do. Right. I mean, well, that's natural to, to everything. Uh, everything that you love to do has a lot of stuff in it that you don't love to do. I mean,
3: yeah.
1: if you're a singer in a band, you probably love getting in front of the audience and singing, you know, do you love doing sound checks? Probably not. Do you love, uh, I think the, the uh, uh, is it Gord Downey, the singer for tragically hip wrote a poem about life on the road, beer and gum. <laughs> in other words, that's their meal. are sitting in a bus. You know, for months uh, driving from place to place. And uh, so, you know, 90% of a musician's life is tuning, sound checks and traveling yeah. and um, uh, not uh, being at one with the audience. So uh, just about everything that you do is kind of slow and kind of painful. You know, I mean, to get into, um, I don't know what the Iron Man suit, Robert Downey Jr. had to spend like four hours in makeup and then he gets to act for maybe three minutes. Mm mm-hmm. Uh, so most of what people want to do is just full of so much stuff that they don't want to do. Marlon Brando w- would go, and he, the reason he stopped making movies was, of course, they didn't have widescreen for his ass, but uh, also because it was just so boring. It's so he would sit there, you just sit there on set. And you got to stay in character, and you got to be ready to go. But there's a lighting problem. There's a sound problem. There's uh, the weather is not right, the whatever. Or he'd give the speech of his life, and then he'd, they'd say, oh, can you do that again with the chin up a little bit? We didn't quite get the eyes. And it's just it's really boring. It's really dull. Um, when I was an actor, um, I worked, uh, I played the – I just dreamt about this last night, that I went back in time, and I saw myself playing Macbeth. Almost 30 years ago. I played Macbeth when I was 22, I think. So 26 years ago. I I went back and I thought, hey, it was pretty good. And I was thinner. (laughs) But um, we did that. And I worked with an Iranian director. And we started, we did the play, I think, in March. And we started, I started doing rehearsals with him in November. And... We we worked that play six ways from Sunday, and then we ran for two weeks. And uh, a massive amount of that was, you know, walk to this spot, turn, and then the technique of the sword fight at the end and uh, all these various things that uh, went on. And the actual sort of great fun stuff with the audience or great powerful connection with the audience, which didn't always happen every night, was a very minor part of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So... So yeah, I mean a lot of um you know if you're a musician or a songwriter, a lot of the songs that you you come up with just don't pan out they just don't work out you can't i mean leonard Cohen the um the, the guy who who wrote hallelujah uh it took him months and months to finish that song. He was going up and down a, I think in Montreal at a hotel tearing his hair out saying, "I can't finish this fucking song it just it was driving him insane um <laughs> Phil Collins at uh, Live, Aid screwed up the intro to um his his song is uh How Can You Just Let Me Walk Away when all I can do is watch you go and it's like against all odds and um it just it's what happens uh, a lot of stuff is crap and if you really care about it then you accept that and you just you just push through it uh you know I mean the the, the athlete uh, spends like ten or twenty times more practicing than playing. It's just the way it works. Uh, Tiger Woods was on the Johnny Carson show when he was two years old playing golf because his dad wanted him to play golf. Andre Agassi, the player, the tennis player, tennis pro, uh, had his his father strapped ping pong paddles to his hands when he was like a year or two old and started teaching him tennis from there. And it took him still like 10 or 12 years before he began sort of really doing stuff in tennis. So you may have this um, – you look at – the top of the – you look at the top of the mountain and you say – like you have a camera that looks at the top 50 feet of the mountain and you say, well, it's just 50 feet up the mountain, right? That's what you see. I'd love to get to the top of the mountain from K2. What an amazing view. Uh, the, the shadows of K2 stretching out to China, the the, the, the Himalayas or the the, the the mountaintops all around you stepping over the bodies of the 11 people who died in 08 or whatever. And you have this camera that, that goes the 50 foot up to the top of the mountain. But when you pan that camera back, that camera, that, that mountain is 8,000 feet high. And some climbers who went to go and climb K2, they, they went there. This husband and wife team wanted to go climb it, very experienced climbers. They went to that mountain for 93 days. And they tried this route and they tried that route, but the weather was bad. And then there was a snowfall and then there was an avalanche. And, then, and they were there for 93 days. They never got to the top. And They came back later, and then the husband tragically died uh, during an ice fall. But um, you got to pull that camera back. You know, if you're just focusing on the top 50 feet, 100 feet, saying, oh, you know, climb up to the top, uh, there's a massive amount of uh, preparation. And you either do the preparation or you don't. And if you don't do the preparation, then your ambitions will die on the mountain. If you're willing to do the preparation, even if you don't know what it's for, like when I look back at everything that led up to this show – for me doing this show, and I'm not trying to say yay me. I mean a lot of it was accidental, but you know the the vocal training, the theater training, the body uh, training, the the reading, the writing, the, um, the the speeches. I mean I used to give lots of speeches in the business world, lots of training in the business world. Got comfortable talking to people. Uh, the creativity, the rigid discipline of of programming, the logic, the I mean my education, uh, so much stuff. Sort of even my technical capacities to do. You know, podcast XMLs and way back in the day when it was hard to do that stuff. All of that stuff kind of came together. And this is why I encourage people to compete. (laughs) I'm quite comfortable with that. I think that would be just fine. So if you have this belief that, because when we see other people achieve, we see the end of an 8,000, we see the last 50 or 100 feet of an 8,000 foot climb. And I think in our mind's eye, we know that we start not – we don't even start at the bottom of the mountain when it comes to climbing something like K2 or Everest. We don't even start at the bottom of the mountain. We don't start – we do don't—we start without the ability to climb 20 flights of stairs probably, right? So even to get to the bottom of K2 or Everest, you know, there's four base camps going up K2. Even to get to the bottom of that takes years and then getting up it. May take two or three trips and months and months of time, and uh, for every four climbers that go up, one of them dies. So it also takes a kind of suicidality, in my opinion. But if you care enough about what you're doing, and I do believe, I do believe that when it comes right down to it, it is our fundamental motivation is the gifts that we can give to the world. I am not in this show for people to think anything about me. I don't want people to think anything about me. I don't want them to care anything about me. Uh, You know, people say, oh, you did the truth about this. What's the truth about Stefan Molyneux? Can I tell you, it's exquisitely boring. (laughs) It really is. Uh, Today, uh, I woke up and uh, I had some breakfast and uh, I worked on, we, we have an 82 slide presentation on Germany's economic decline. So I did research uh, it, it, I went through that presentation and uh, rearranged it a bit, cleaned it up uh, and uh, got rid of some stuff and then did some research about Germany's finance minister after the Second World War who undid all the damage of the Nazis. And that was my day. My daughter came home. We had uh, my wife. My daughter came home. We had dinner. I gave her a bath and I came down to do this show. Really boring. <laughs> well, <laughs> I love
2: it. Well, but actually, it's really boring. Sorry, Actually, go ahead. that's kind of the video I've been waiting for, though, because my before I, I did the question I did then I wanted to ask about where can I find data on on Germany's you know economic decline because I know all the way the U.S. is going to hell but I don't know about Germany but I guess that's, okay no no that, but hang on, me, my, another, hang, hang on let me let me just finish my hang on let
1: me sorry to interrupt let me just fin- finish my point then I'll I'll be quiet so I uh, you know I don't want this is a I want this to be a one way Uh, Like a one-way conversation, not between you and I, but this show going out to the world. You know, I'm happy to answer questions if people want to ask. It's not about me. I think it's about philosophy to the world. You know, like, I mean, uh, Alexander Salk, the guy who came up with the polio vaccine, his major concern was to get the polio vaccine into the veins of the people. You know, if people said thanks, yeah, that's nice. And we get thanks, and that's wonderful, and we get updates on how people are doing, and we hear all this wonderful stuff about peaceful parenting from people, and People getting out of bad relationships that can't be re- recovered from and, and can't be um, uh, rescued. And it's all great. But my goal is to get philosophy, the methodology, not any of my conclusions, to get the methodology of thinking into the brains of the people. And that is my, uh, this is the gift that I want to give to the world. That's what I want to provide to the world. That's what motivates me. You know, I like. I like it when people donate, because that's a signal of how well I'm connecting with and and helping uh, people through this conversation. So I like when people donate. That's important. I got to eat and pay the bills and all that kind of stuff. But my fundamental concern is I want people to listen to philosophy. I want people to get interested in philosophy. I am not a singer. I am a singing teacher. And a singing teacher, it's fine if they can do some scales and so on, but... Uh, I am not someone I want them to come and watch me give a singing concert and go, wow, that guy's a great singer. I want people to say, holy shit, I can sing, baby. And that's now if you have a gift that you want to give to the world, that gift can be music. It can be a great business environment. It can be if you have the idea for a dispute resolution organization or some sort of mediation organization, then you're going to bring peace and security and negotiation and an avoidance of the god awful court systems and so on. You're going to bring a gift. To the world. Now, if you can think in terms of bringing a gift to the world, then your focus is is on how you can benefit the world. And that doesn't mean at your own expense. Uh, I'm, I'm happier doing what I'm doing now than being in the business world or being in the art world or being in the theater world or being in the writing world or being in the whatever, right? And it's not a self sacrifice position, but I think if you can get to a place where you can bring a gift and the gift can be, you know, like Joe Rogan likes to make people laugh. It's very good at it. He brings a lot of happiness to people, gets well paid for it. And I think that's great. But if you have a gift to bring to the world. Then I think that is a motivation. But if it's about you, uh, I don't think it's sustainable. Anyway, that's it for my speech. But go ahead.
2: Uh, Yeah. What I want to say, I think you. Struck gold at the, or oil or whatever is more valuable now. Uh, and at the beginning of that, where you said that everything you love has, you know, 90% maybe of stuff you don't like. Um, and I actually, I wouldn't look at it as a mountain. I would more look at it as digging for something valuable. So on the surface, it looks very nice. If you have a topic you like on the surface, you know, very shallow interest basically and then it's it's a lot of fun that way maybe you watch a documentary about it and then you start digging into it you start working on it and then until you become you know not even an expert but very knowledgeable about the subject which obviously takes a long time it's not that much fun but as soon as you reach the stage where you a ha- stage where you have the knowledge it's a lot of fun again i know this from only one subject so far which is history and politics which i worked into A lot when i was younger and i kind of stopped doing that it's kind of you know i I wanted to go back to that so uh or to to something like that and there's a number of subjects where i like the subject and i want to work into it but i can't get myself to do the sound checks basically you know i
1: can't I, I mean, I'm, so look, maybe um, maybe you're the kind of person, or or you choose to have a kind of life where you should be the cog in someone else's machine. Maybe um, maybe you should just find someone whose cause you believe in and go and offer them your services. So you don't like, not everyone has to be the chief. Mm, yeah, I
2: I don't know. This is this is more on the basis of. I want to do something I know I need this you know the sound checking to do it but I don't like the sound checking part which is you know it's a different subject but it is required to understand fully the subject I'm
1: into Okay uh, but see, you're not you're not listening to what I'm saying Of course you don't like the sound check part we already established that You know I mean I told you of course 90% of what you want of what you do that you love is boring is dull is you know right i get that and now you're saying well i don't like that boring stuff it's like yes i know (laughs) i know you're not telling me anything new yes no the thing is um
2: when you were on the joe rogan show you talked about uh the the difference between busy people and people that do nothing that you know is uh, where joe said i think that before he started comedy and before he started getting busy, he was very slow. And then when he started getting busy and working more, then the working became easier with time. I think it was basically and, and he look, started it's, having it's like, fun with it. You know, he started but it's, it's
1: like it. Uh, if you want to st- if you want to start exercising, then the, at the beginning, it's bad, right? It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's painful. It's, uh, you know, you don't want to do it because you, you're changing your habits. So I don't know what to tell you other than you're either going to do it or you're not. I mean, are you trying to say, well, I, I haven't exercised in 20 years and I want it to be easier to start. I don't like exercising. Well, of course you don't like exercising because you haven't done it for 20 years. Is it going to be easy to start? Of course it's not. But what are your alternatives? What are your alternatives? Do you going to go and do, like, uh, you're going to go work retail or, or be a waiter or whatever? I mean, no, those things are fine I don't too. Know. Well, then, well, the how the are, thing, you the thing, are you living? The on? thing is, the
2: thing is that, as I heard the last time that I think it takes like 40 or 50 days till things become a habit. So if you repeat something for the, that X amount of time, it becomes a habit and you just do it automatically, apparently. Um, and I know that from training that after, you know, starting to train and going on for for a couple of weeks, it was like, okay, now I want to go train. Uh, the question is, how do I get through that in-between phase between, you know, the start and, and oh, my God, it becomes a habit. Oh,
1: look, you're asking me questions. I'm sorry to sound annoyed, but I, I am annoyed. I'm, it doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just you're asking me questions that you already know the answer to. You just goddamn well commit. You just. Commit. There's this is woman who just wrote a book. That uh, she was an athlete when she was in her teens, in her early 20s, and then she basically smoked and sat on the couch for 25 years. And then she basically was horrified at having turned into a middle-aged muffin. And she's like, you know what, I'm going to try and get into the best shape of my life. And she went to her doctor and she said, isn't it insane that I'm thinking it? overweight and I'm 50 that I'm going to get in the best shape of my life? And the doctor said, no, it's not insane at all. In fact, 70% of the effects of aging can be eliminated, not just reduced, eliminated by diet and exercise. And... So she did it, and she wrote a book about it, and she now is running marathons, and she's the best shade of life, and it was horrible getting her body moving again. And uh, she's like, yeah. I used to think, oh, well, I can't run. It's bad for the knees. It's like, you know what's bad for the knees? Being overweight. And so you're saying, well, how do I make myself do something that I don't want to do? Well, you can't change that you don't want to do it, so you just make yourself do it. I mean, I don't, I don't understand what... Um, you, you, just, you just do it. I mean, that Nike thing is <laughs> kind of true. I mean, you do it or you don't. But uh, you're, you're asking me to substitute some advice for your willpower. But if you, if you don't know why you should be doing something, there's no point me telling you. And if you do know why you should be doing something, then you're either going to do it or you're not. But that's your sovereign choice. That's your sovereign choice. You're either going to do it or you're not. And there's no one outside of yourself who can generate in you the focus and commitment to make something happen. There is nobody who can do that for you. I mean, I can say, well, you know, you'll be happier. That doesn't matter because then I'm bribing you. I can't guarantee you'll be happier. You might, uh, you know, I had a guy I worked with. In uh, we we worked together for, gosh, about six months. We worked uh, prospecting together, and uh, pretty nice guy. And then he was continuing to work up there. I went back uh, to to university, and he was working up there. He was going to get married in two months. He was working up there, and uh, he wanted to get in good shape to look good in his wedding pictures and uh, he jogged, he was jogging and a truck came whistling around the bend and uh, hit him and he died immediately. Now was that exercise good for him? Hell no. He would have been better off sitting on the couch for 10 years because you can undo some of that damage but you can't do undo the damage of getting a getting wedged in between the grill of a speeding pickup truck. So I can't guarantee you At all, I can't bribe you with anything of any certainty. I don't know how this show is going to play out, for better or ill. I can't guarantee you with any certainty that you are, A, going to get what you want, and B, that what you want is good for you, and C, that you'll actually like what you want, even if it's good for you. Michael Hutchins, great singer, great front man for the band In Excess. Had a wretched love life. And then uh, apparently killed himself, auto asphyxiation, and was on antidepressants. As far as I understand, all kinds of mess. The singer for Blind Melon was a football guy and a athlete guy. Ended up, I think, being a drug addict and died. And I mean, so even the people who get what they want, even the people who achieve everything they would possibly set out to achieve, playing stadiums and having number one hits all over the place and so on, don't seem to have. An excess of happiness at times. So, you know, even if you get everything that you want, that doesn't mean that you'll like what you get. Doesn't mean that it's good for you. I watched um, something on Netflix, which I highly recommend, called 20 Feet from Stardom about backup singers. And one of them, one of the singers was saying, You just got to listen to this woman singing the, uh, you know, the passionate cat in a blender screeches of, uh, Gimme Shelter is an amazing, amazing vocalist. And one of the singers was saying, Yeah, you know, I wanted a solo album, this, that, and the other. But I ended up not doing it, which is probably just as well because if I'd been a superstar, I'd probably have OD'd by now, <laughs> right? I don't know if that's sour grapes or whatever, but who knows? Not everyone who's successful is happy, and not everyone who's unsuccessful is unhappy. So I can't bribe you with anything that is going to say, Do it, and you'll be happy. And, and, if I say do it because you'll be happy, then when you're not happy, you won't want to do it. So that doesn't help. You just, I mean, again, I, my only thing is if you, if you think that you can make the world a better place by bringing some talent to bear or a happier place, if you can make people laugh, if you can make them tap their toes, if you can put a joyful noise into their heart with your fingers or your mouth, then do it. And... If you can do sit-ups and be some woman's arm candy to make her feel better at a lonely company (laughs) dinner, do that too. I don't don't care. If if, if all you want to do is go and sing at karaoke and make a fool of yourself and make people laugh, go do that too. If you want to be working for a company that makes customer experiences better, if you want to start a company and make people's work environment better, if you want to make a lot of money and you want to give to charity, do it or don't do it. If you want to stay home and play video games, whatever. Whatever. But I would say that for me, the greatest satisfaction, satisfaction is different from happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Satisfaction accumulates. Happiness is like a lightning strike. Satisfaction is like snow that piles up. It just, it just accumulates. The satisfaction is knowing that you're making the world a better place for whoever you can come in contact with. And certainly doing a DRO would be very helpful with that. And if you're committed to making the world a better place, then you do it and it doesn't. The discomfort is sort of immaterial. And if you can imagine, like, we talked you know, earlier about someone, someone drowning in a lake. Well, let's say the lake is really cold and you dive into the lake. Well, it's really cold and you've got to swim like 100 yards to go and get this person, this kid who's drowning in the lake. Well, most of your time in the lake is very unpleasant, but you feel very good at having saved the kid. So you wouldn't, I mean, most people wouldn't sit there and say, "Ooh, that's kind of chilly, you know, <laughs> that's that's uncomfortable. But most of your time in saving that person is going to be very uncomfortable. And uh, yet you focus on saving and helping that person. So if you've got something of benefit to offer the world, then be driven by what the world needs, not by your comfort in the moment. You know, the world needs people to help the world. I mean, I think about this a lot. Not what do I want to do? What does the world need? What does the world want me to do? What does the future want me to do? What does the, un- what do the unborn want me to do? Well, what they want me to do, the unborn want me to teach parents about peaceful parenting, because that's what I would have most wanted my parents to know. And that's what's been most valuable for me as a parent. So I want to bring a peaceful parent in the world. What does the longer distance future want me to do? To talk about a stateless society so that we can have uh, an an end to intergenerational theft and predation and ridiculous jails and incarcerations and wars and uh, inflations. And I mean, so we can finally end all of this stuff. That's what the more distant future wants me to do, and that's what animates me, in the same way that I'm glad that people made very uncomfortable decisions around the separation of church and state and uh, freedom of speech, freedom of association, and all of those things which people fought for in the past, uh, for science uh, against superstition, for medicine against quackery, or all of the things that were done in the past that gave me a better world, that's what I'm, I'm glad. If I could send a message back in time, I'd say, I'm really glad you did that. I'm, I'm. Thank you so much. I'm sorry it was uncomfortable. Thank you so much for doing that. And I view these messages in bottles coming back to me from the future, saying, thank you for what you're doing. I know it was hard. I know it was tough sometimes, but thank you so much for what you did. And the tens or hundreds of thousands of kids who are not being hit or yelled at as a result of this show, well, they're Some of them are too young to say thanks and some of them may not figure it out until they get older. But they're thanking me too. And the millions of kids that I hope to end up not getting hit or yelled at by the time I'm dead and gone, they will thank me too. That's what... This is what they want me to do. This is what they need me to do. This is the most important thing I can do for them. Is it uncomfortable for me at times? Yeah, it's uncomfortable for me at times. So what? That's what they want. And I think that's a reasonable thing to want. And because... I can empathize with them, and I wish someone had done that for my parents. If someone had taken a stand on peaceful parenting and the voluntary family 50 years ago or 100 years ago, well, <laughs> I would have had a very different childhood. So that's what you need to focus on if you want to find a way of wading through the bullshit to get the snowdrift of satisfaction to keep your house up. And if you can't find something that the world is yearning for you to do, that you wish had been done for you, then I think you're just going to be distracted by the inconsequential detritus and flotsam and jetsam of who cares, right? I mean, all, all of the junky crap that you have, you know, your taxes and your paperwork and receipts and You got to go to the dentist, you know, (laughs) you got to, you know, we got to do these uh, uh, shows where with sometimes there's edits, and right? But what matters is the message that goes out to people that makes this goddamn world a better place and making the world a better place is nothing but willpower. It's nothing but willpower. That's all it is. Making the decision, learning what's right, sticking to it, communicating to it and refusing to back the fuck down that's all it comes down to everything that is virtuous everything that is good everything that is glowing everything that is improved everything that makes this world a bearable place is the result of someone learning communicating willing and not backing down that's all it comes down to if you can find something that passion makes you passionate in that way, do it, pursue it, make it happen, make it real. If you can't find something like that, attach to someone who can and have them tell you what to do. that I think is the only way that you can accumulate the snowdrifts of satisfaction that make every day and looking out the window a Christmas postcard.
2: All right, I think uh, yeah, just do it, I think is very catchy for that thanks uh I think I should. Make room for the next caller. Uh, All right. Thank you. I hope that helped. I'll see if it did. I think it felt like it, like it, uh, you know, struck a chord, I guess. All right. All right.
0: All right. Up next, it's Alex and Natasha. Uh, They wrote in and said, Alex cheated on his wife, Natasha, for eight years. They want to know, is it possible for them to change given the long history of dysfunction in their relationship?
4: Wow. Hi, Steph.
1: Hello. Hello, hello, hello.
4: Uh, First of all, I wanted to say a huge thank you to you, your family, Mike, and everyone who makes this conversation possible. It has really changed our lives in a way we could
1: not imagine. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, so how long have you guys been married?
4: Um, so we've been married for eight years and. No, uh, sorry, no. we've been together we've been married
5: for,
4: for six years. For six years, yes, and we've been together for eight years.
1: You've been together for eight years, and Alex, you were cheating for eight years?
4: Uh, that is correct. Uh, so half of our relationship was long distance, started from the very beginning. And so throughout our marriage and in my prior romantic relationships, I was not faithful. Uh, if I had a chance to sleep around and get away with it, I would do it. Natasha didn't know about it. There were signs, uh, but I didn't tell her until this last May.
1: Right. And how, uh, have there been any sort of practical... I mean, obviously emotional response, uh, results of, of the infidelities. What about uh, STDs or unwanted pregnancies or stalkers or bunny boilers or anything like that?
4: Uh, hope, um, no, none of that. Somehow lucky.
1: Right, okay, okay. And how did this come out?
4: Um, so in the beginning of this year, we started living together again. Um, at that point, I had listened to Freedom and Radio for about a year And I said to myself, enough philosophical theory, I'm going to put real-time relationship in practice. Um, So I remember the first time when I uh, wanted to tell Natasha I feel anger and frustration when we had an argument. I just simply couldn't say those words to her. I was really scared. So I had to push myself to do that. Um, But she responded very positively, and we started practicing it more and more. Uh, and it was just really amazing we could spend a whole day cuddling and talking about emotions and childhood philosophy just about anything and it was like a whole new world to me you know one really cool thing um my sex drive increased and even my erotic fantasies were about her i think that's the power of rdr <laughs> right right uh so uh, so in two months uh, we became closer to each other than we had ever been before.
1: Uh, we, we, and I appreciate that, and that's great to hear, but that, of course, would be with the somewhat significant exception of you not telling her about the
4: abilities. Right. right, so right. I was still lying to her um, about having this awful secret. Um, so before, I couldn't even imagine telling her about my past, but something changed during those two months where I just had a, slight preview of what RTR could be, you know, it was like, like a black hole that opened up inside of me and started sucking my soul from inside. Um, so I got to the point where I could not live any longer uh, with those lies, and I told Natasha that I betrayed her. It was a horrible experience for her, and I'm so incredibly sorry about what I did for wasting her fertility years. Uh, I was a cold-hearted manipulative monster, and I decided I'm going to do everything it takes to change it.
1: And uh, Natasha, what was your what were your thoughts about what Alex is saying?
5: <clears throat> oh, I was afraid I couldn't speak. It is, uh, it is still emotional. Of course. <clears throat> Um, when he told me, <clears throat> you know, it was like, it was like, you know, building is just starting falling. Go on. Um, <clears throat> uh, then I just like take everything and stay with my friends. And Alex actually left, I left our apartment in four days. So I just... I mean, I was, I was, you know, emotional roller coaster. I couldn't sleep for three weeks. I couldn't eat. I was crying all the time. So I just like was in denial. I couldn't believe that. Huh. And then, like right now. So it happened in May when Alex told me. So we we was Alex went on vacation after that. Hmm um he
1: went on vacation by himself
5: yes um and i was so alex doesn't work so he it was a vacation that we planned before he would go back to russia and then i will join him for two weeks that i have as my vacation so once i get back to russia and um, we, we flew back to U.S. together and I was just trying, you know, first my first reaction was just like, get out of my life. Then in a couple of days, I started thinking maybe I have to give myself time and process that, not doing that impulsive, relation, you know, decisions. Why
1: doesn't, um, sorry, why doesn't he work?
5: Uh, uh, he is in startups so, he quitted his corporate job last year, and he's trying to focus on his couple startups. Some oh,
1: so it's not just that he's very pretty, right?
5: No, no. He's he's okay. actually very focused, and he's working all the time. And I guess I can call myself lazy comparing to him.
1: <laughs> oh, so he works. He just doesn't get paid as yet. He's
5: Yeah. Yeah, startups. and I was okay, okay with that. I, I mean, I like that, so... Um you know, drive. So once we get back and we we start started living together. I mean we didn't we were not close anymore, we were like separate people in one apartment. I was just trying to listen to myself. What do I feel? What do I really want? You know, and see how he would behave. And what really was <clears throat> so and then we, I mean, we've we been talking about that and many times he would start telling me that it was my fault as well so which was making me very upset about that and I remember one time we've been driving together for the uh, out of the town and for two years for two hours we would be arguing that he was trying to prove me that it was 50 percent of my fault that what happened in our relationship. I mean, I can, I can see that. I can see the patterns of my parents in our relationship. I can see that. But it was just too brutal for me to listen to that. Too brutal for my self-esteem, which was wrecked by that betrayal. And a month ago, I think three weeks ago, I just I discovered his um, uh, interaction with one of the girls. So I just told him to get away from my apartment.
1: You mean one of the interactions like um, what, emails or chat logs or whatever from the past or from the present?
5: Um, He actually was interacting with them uh, and he said that he just wants to apologize for what he did to them as well and but my look was that he was thinking about himself as a someone who has a great experience in uh, philosophy and psychology who can teach other people that what they do is wrong and i don't think he's in that position yet <clears throat> i told him that many times and i told him that i don't like that interaction and uh, And what I discovered three weeks ago was something like in May, he told me that once he moved, when we moved back together, it was so wonderful, such a great experience. And he cannot imagine why we live separately. And he's been telling me so many stuff differently that it never happened to us before. So I was very happy. And I just discovered that in April, he traveled back to the town that he used to stay. And actually he met one of that woman, and the text was very sexual. So what he told me before that the uh, February and March relationships impressed him so much that he couldn't go back. But actually in April he went back to meet that girl. And actually, but it was
1: May that uh, it was May that this all came out. Is that right?
5: Yeah, May 11 was the day when everything came out. And actually, I explicitly asked him what was the last time you interacted with. The, what, was a woman for that sex interest and he lied to me. He told me it was before he came to Cleveland and uh, I just discovered three weeks ago that he met with someone in April as well.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly if, if you're going to come clean, it's usually good to come all the way clean, right?
5: Yeah. I mean, I just, it was those several months was so hard on me. I, I, I consider myself being usually positive and happy all my friends was very surprised to see me when, when I travel back to Russia that I was so upset you know I, I just always positive active do stuff go to sports go out with friends chat with friends and I'm just total disaster for, for this half a year and awful things happened to me uh, I actually a couple times I thought like About suicide.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to
5: hear that. I can't do it anymore to myself.
1: What was Alex's argument as to why he felt it might be your fault somewhat?
5: Because I didn't put the, um, strong boundaries. Because when we started dating, I saw a couple of times he was flirting with, with women. I mean, I was upset at that time. I never hide my emotions. I am emotional. In our couple, he was not emotional. So my problem with him was all that years that I couldn't connect with him emotionally. So actually, I saw him flirting several times. And I was upset, I was making a big deal of that, and he somehow just was able to make me believe that it was a mistake, it will never happen again. So oh, I. No, st- that,
1: so maybe I should talk to Alex about this. So Alex, what was your argument as to why it was uh, half Natasha's fault?
4: Um. So I wouldn't say it was really half. Yes, I was argued at that point, but uh, quickly got to realize that we can't put any really quantitative numbers to this thing. Um, I was saying that I wasn't really in a position to tell her that it was her fault, but I wanted her to get some feedback out of that too so uh, he can grow as well. Uh, it was really difficult. So to I'm sorry, N-
1: N- Natasha said that you argued that, Natasha said that, you had told her that it was somewhat her fault. Uh, Is she wrong in that?
4: No, no, yes. Okay, so
1: then you want to just stop weaseling with me and just (laughs) don't give me the case, just give me the facts, right? So what was your argument as to why it was somewhat her fault?
4: Um, So I think she should have been more assertive with me, and whenever um, she saw things that hurt her, uh, when I was flirting with girls, there was a... Uh, incident in Turkey where um, I was really close to a girl that mm, sitting very very close and like looking at the picture on the camera that she gets really upset and wanted to end the relationship um, and she should have done it at that time uh, based I'm sorry on how long
1: didn't... was uh, how long was that into your relationship
4: it was
5: one year
1: one year mm-hmm. so she, you felt that it was partly her fault because she knew you were flirting with other girls, but she didn't break up with you.
4: Um, she wasn't. Assertive. I'm not being
1: facetious. I'm not like right. I'm not trying to lay a trap. I just really want to understand what your thinking is.
4: Right. Um, so I think she should have been more assertive with me, and that uh, would have helped her. So she couldn't say to me what I should do or should not, but she could have said. I totally do not accept uh, you flirting uh, with other girls, making me jealous or creating the situations where I think that you may have something and you hurt my feelings. If you continue doing that, I'm not dating you anymore. We're not getting married. That's it.
1: Now, did you know that what you were doing was going to hurt her feelings? I mean, you hid it from her, so I assume that you knew, right? Right. Right, yes. Yeah, so so the fact that you knew you were going to hurt her feelings wasn't enough to stop you, but if she'd said it, you felt it might have been enough.
4: Um, at that time, I obviously would not have these thoughts. It's from my understanding that at this point uh, what she could have done at that time. But I totally agree. I said it's hypocrisy uh, on my side. I knew that I'm going to hurt a thing. I didn't tell her anything about it. I kept hiding it. Um, So there is no really excuse or explanation for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly I wouldn't say that she's responsible for you being unfaithful and lying about it. No. Now, you know, whether there were signs or whether there were indications or, you know, whether she should have stayed with you or not, that's, I mean, you know, you have to be responsible for what you did and she has to be responsible for what she did. Correct. And what she did didn't cause what you did. And what you did didn't cause what she did directly, right? Because we can't reach into each other's brains and make things move, right? Right, right. Now, Alex, you know about Natasha's adverse childhood experience score? I don't know. They were sent to us. Yes. So, you know, she had it pretty rough, right? Right. And would you expect for somebody to have... uh, Natasha, I won't go into them unless it's okay with you, but, but... but you had a pretty rough. Would you expect somebody with that kind of history to be very assertive and confident and secure?
4: Not really. Um, I found out about her history, about um, your, her adverse childhood experience, pretty much only within uh, maybe last year when I got enlightened by philosophy. And we talked a lot the past six months since May about our childhood and histories. Um, so at the moment, no, of course I would not, um, we try to identify the patterns in her childhood, um, that would lead to her accepting my behavior, um, and allowing me to do that.
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, she, she grew up around, let's just put it as mildly as possible, some pretty dysfunctional sexuality.
5: Uh, it's actually, it was not in the family.
1: That was outside the family.
5: I mean, that sexual abuse score that I pulled, it happens, I, I grew up in Russia, and we have that public transportation, and it happens once that somebody, like I was 11 or 10, somebody started touching me in, in the public transportation. So that yeah. was my experience that was very unpleasant.
1: Right, right.
5: I, I just didn't tell my parents, I guess, because I, I was embarrassed.
1: Right, and generally these sons of bitches know somehow, I don't know how they know, but they usually know when kids don't have a close enough relationship with their parents Mm
5: -hmm. Mm -hmm. to say
1: that. Uh, But you also, you were with verbal abuses and threats, and you live with an alcoholic or drug user? Uh,
5: My dad has an alcoholic problem for for some time, but he stopped for some reason.
1: Good. I guess that's one less in Russia. That's nice to hear.
5: Yeah, he just I mean it's it was very common in a little town like ours and he, our family was considered not to be that as bad. Like he just come home drunk once a week and my mom get very upset and aggressive, so this is what I saw for, for a while.
1: What do you guys want going forward? I mean, do you wanna stay married? Do you wanna have kids? I mean what what's your what do you want going forward? Do you think?
5: I do not believe we can stay married. I do not believe it's healthy for my self-esteem. I, I'm not sure how I'm going to tell my kids why did I stay. And Are they both
1: th- of your kids or from some other marriage?
5: I do not have any kids. We don't have kids. It was a oh,
1: so future kids. Sorry. Okay. Yeah,
5: future kids. And another thing okay. is that. Uh, I'm not sure that if Alex is going to be emotionally available for kids. This is what I worry about. Like he, he's very intellectual guy. So he told me his argument was, why didn't why if you were so emotional and you were trying to connect with me emotionally all those years, why you didn't explain to me that this is important in a relationship? I was like, how can I explain you what? I don't know. I I was trying to connect and connect and connect, and it didn't work. And he said, "So if it didn't work, why did why did you keep connecting?" So it just like we're on such a different emotional level, and he and it was like that all the times. So I was I came upset and needing just hug and support. He would tell me, "Oh, what's going on? Just go and do this to solve this issue." You know, I don't want my kid to be in this situation.
1: Is there uh, love uh, between you still that you can feel?
5: I definitely do not feel that much connection and that much. I mean, I can feel that from May. You know, my feelings are going down. I cannot. I mean, how can I love someone who hurts me that much and do that things with me, those things with me? I mean, and my, Alex, my um, problem um, is Sorry to
1: interrupt, Natasha. Mm-hmm. I just want to know what Alex. How how do you feel about uh, the marriage?
4: Um, so this time since May was really really rough. I definitely felt in love uh, during those two months. Um, right now, it's really hard to tell. We had so many arguments just about everything, about our parents, about philosophy, just just like any topic possible. And I can see how. Uh, that was obviously affected by uh, all the experience that it caused um, to Natasha. Um, so, I would love to fix the relationship if possible. Uh, I think we would probably have to work uh, separately uh, with therapists, and that's what we started doing. Um, also, when I went to Russia, I spent all, pretty much most of the time uh, examining. My childhood with my parents, um, confronting them on the issues, uh, my friends, pretty much everybody, um, and at the moment, um, you know, you think you once said that it takes ten times positive experience to compensate for a bad experience. So yeah, and it,
1: you guys don't have 80 years, right?
4: Right, and we don't have 80 years, and I'm not sure. I would definitely love it, but I don't want Natasha to constantly remember, remembering this and like every time something comes up and being constantly worried about it for how many years, I don't know, it's going to take her.
1: uh, Yeah, I mean, so and I don't mean to pick on you, Alex, it's just that this is, you know, you've done the big talked about stuff or stuff we can talk about. Do you have any ideas or thoughts as to what your thinking was with regards to these affairs? How did you think, or did you think, it was going to play out? How did you think it might play out? What did you think might happen?
4: Um, so, um, I surrounded myself throughout, uh, say, my probably college years with friends who probably um, kind of had the same attitude. Um, that we had a feeling that you have a primary relationship that could be your marriage or just your girlfriend that um, you have the main relationship with, and then you can you know have other women on the side and it's like not important. And I think that's kind of an idea that
1: I had and I thought. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. And is that something that came from your culture or your friends or? From my- like, were your parents that way, or is you know because in like in some cultures, like France, for instance, uh, if you are I don't know wealthy and powerful, or this sometimes happens in Italy or whatever, but you know it's like you've got your wife for your raising your kids, and then you've got your uh, mistress for you know whatever you want to do with uh, uh, balloon animals and stuff, and. Was this something that is sort of in the culture or in your parents' marriage, or, or was it mostly your friends?
4: I think it's both. Uh, so, my parents divorced when I was three, and I grew up with my mother. Uh, my father was married four times, and he has three kids from different wives.
1: Um, um, do you know why his uh, marriages broke up?
4: Um, so, this summer when I talked to him, um, his value in a relationship and in a woman is just physical attractiveness. He does not know how to build a uh, deep emotional um, relationship that is based on moral philosophical values. His argument was, well, right now he's married to a woman that my young much younger than he is, and one of the things he said, uh, like, I look at the women of my age and I can't imagine having sex with him.
1: And so, okay, I th- so like, so he he basically keeps marrying younger women.
4: Um. As he was getting older, uh, yes. So right now, he is uh, in, I think, probably last relationship. I don't think he's going to get married again. So all this together, um, I think, defined my reproductive strategy to be that it's pray and pray. Um, my mother was an artist. That's what I found um, when talking to her. So I didn't know how to express emotions, how to bond, how to build close relationship. And the biggest value that I could get from a romantic relationship was a dose of endorphins uh, that I would get from seducing a new woman and having sex with her. And I think that's the drug that I kept abusing.
1: Do you know if your father had affairs? Um,
4: he said that, um, he said a very interesting phrase. He said, when I had was in a relationship, I did not cheat. But when the relationship was not so good, which I assume was kind of towards the end, towards the divorce, then... I think he said he had uh, affairs. Right. But that's what I found out this summer.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, consciously. Mm -hmm. So, um, I appreciate that. Now, Natasha, when you look back at Alex eight years ago, Mm -hmm. were there any signs, looking back, if you try to be sort of as turn the searchlights on as much as possible, were there any signs that this was in his character?
5: I mean, as I told you, I saw him flirting a couple of times with other girls. And I know that his dad is married the fourth time. And so, it might be a good prediction, predictors.
1: So, okay. Uh, so, I mean, I, th- I think those are important, right? Because, I mean, you know, whether you stay together or not, it's obviously your decision. Right. You don't even need to say that. But... What can be helpful, I mean, there's two things helpful about talking about this stuff. One is that you can sort of see what you didn't see earlier on, which helps Mm -hmm. other people who are listening to this look for those kinds of things, too. And if you don't end up staying together, you obviously don't want to get back into a similar situation with somebody else, which means that you need to be aware or alert to the signs. So Mm
5: -hmm.
1: a a man whose parents split up when he was three and whose father went on to have multiple marriages Mm -hmm. with women who he basically married for their looks, for their sex appeal. Is, is that right, Alex? Correct. Right. And Alex, is your background Russian too or somewhere else? Uh, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Russian. Right. I mean, there is sort of a cliche that you have these sort of not-too-attractive Russian men who are continually bedding these very attractive Russian women. I don't know. Is, that's a cliche you sort of see from outside. Is that somewhat true from the inside as well?
5: Probably.
1: Yeah. So At least from he my Yeah. So, he, so, of course, the, that would be a pretty important question, right? So, I assume you knew before you got married that Alex's father had married four times and his mother was, an. I think he said, a narcissist. His, it was sort of his words or his word. And... I don't assume that he'd gone through any therapy or had written or sort of read a whole bunch of books on, on how to be married because he certainly didn't have that template, right? Mm-hmm. So when you hire someone, like I just – I went to a burger joint for lunch today. And basically there was a sign on the door that said, Burger Flipper Wanted, Experience Required. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's, it's getting dark, turn it over. Doesn't, you know, I don't seem... To, <laughs> there, I just gave you all the experience you need. But when it comes to this burger joint, they wanted experience in flipping burgers. Now, when it comes to giving someone your heart, when it comes to getting married... I think we got to have experience required right if we I assume you guys got married because you wanted to live together and get old together and till death do you part right
5: uh, no oh no Alex can you explain why did we get married
1: um, so
4: after we started dating six months later I went to this I went to the States uh, to do my masters in computer science and so it was the first long distance, two years. We saw each other twice a year. And at that point, after I graduated, I got a job in the States and um, we wanted to continue the relationship. But the only way for Natasha to come to the States at that point was for us to get married. So we got married because of that.
1: So you didn't intend to stay together forever? I did. We wanted to continue. Oh, Natasha, you did. But Alex, you didn't. You just thought, you know, like your dad, this will be a do for her now kind of thing?
4: No, I wanted, uh, but um, if not the visa situation, then we would not get married at least at that time.
1: But I, you might wa- have gotten married later,
4: right? right? I wanted to continue the relationship, right?
1: I mean, certainly uh, you were committed, right? A long-distance relationship, right? Right. So when you, what you do with your life and who you do it with, and who you do it to. Those are the two big decisions, right? What are you going to do for your career? Uh, What are you going to do to make money? What are you going to do to live? And who are you going to love? Those are the two, uh, two big decisions. In many ways, the second is more important than the first. Because if you have a job that you love, that will not make your marriage happy. But if you have a happy marriage, it's hard not to love your life as a whole. You know, jobs come and go. Money comes and goes. But if you have someone in your corner that you love and who loves you completely. Then everything in life is bearable, is doable, is survivable, allows you to flourish. What you do with your heart and who you give your heart to, I think, is more important than what you do with your head and who you give your economic relations to. Philosophy and virtue is the prerequisite for love, as I formulated. it. And you certainly didn't have any particular focus on philosophy and virtue and commitments to truth and openness and honesty and vulnerability that wasn't part of your thinking so you were kind of going and and without therapy without self-knowledge you both were most likely going on the momentum of history Right? Mm -hmm. right and because you were going on the momentum of history which is what most people do which is why history repeats which is why culture is like a photocopy of the middle ages then you were going to end up reproducing what came before. Mm-hmm. And is it fair to say that in some ways that's what's happened? Uh, yes. Yep, that's right. I, so. I mean, if your marriage fails, then, of course, Alex, this will be strike one out of which your father has had four, right? Correct. And um, you, you said earlier Alex, that Natasha's childbearing years are in question.
0: I'm
4: sorry, said. Um, Steph, say it again, please.
1: Uh, I think you said earlier that Natasha's childbearing years were an issue. In other words, that I don't want to get, to get any specifics about her age, but if you break up, given that it's been eight years, you know she's gonna. If she wants to have kids, I assume she'd need to find a husband fairly quickly.
4: Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Natasha,
1: you yeah. Want to talk about it. So that, of course, is a pretty brutal thing. Uh, and, Natasha, is it that you do want children with your life?
5: Yes, I do. I can tell how, how old I am. I'm 34 now.
1: I'm right. 30. So, yeah. So, for, for Natasha, um, yeah, 26 to 34 is, you know, pretty. Well, it's important for fertility, and fertility begins to decline and all that. So, that's something that is. Uh, you know, it's not, not too late, but it's not, not exactly early either, right? hmm Right. So there is, of course, in economics something called the fallacy of sunk costs. It's the idea that if you've waited 10 minutes for the bus, you don't care that much about You just go walk, right? But if you've waited an hour for the bus, then it feels really stupid to walk because you've put so much time into waiting for the bus. Mm -hmm. that that time now hurts to walk away from eight years is a long time to put into a relationship Mm
5: -hmm. and
1: um to walk away from that is is a big deal particularly around fertility windows and so on but and so you know as far as whether to stay together or not you know i I, no better investment in my opinion could you make right now than to get to a marriage counselor now whether the marriage counselor is going to help you stay married or help you get more amicably separated i don't know because that's Obviously, I'm not an expert in that field, and that's something that is you would work out with a counselor, but I think that's the really important thing to do right now. If you can find a way to save the marriage, then uh, good. And if you can't or won't, then I think going th- having a therapist around who can help you more amicably um, separate and move on, I think would be a huge plus but just for people out there who are listening to this stuff and and I hope you don't mind if I sort of use you as a what they call a teachable moment learn about your potential lovers histories Learn, learn about what their childhoods were like learn about what their template is of romance learn about what their parents have done it doesn't mean that you judge someone by what his or her mother or father have done But when you ask people to recount their histories, listen with every single hair, listen with every single pore, listen with every single fiber of your being, every single eardrum hair should be attuned to listening to this person talk about their history. If they're glib, if they skate over it, if things have gone wrong, but they don't seem to acknowledge or notice it, you are setting yourself up for disaster, almost certainly you are setting yourself up for disaster you know i mean to take a ridiculous example which doesn't apply to you guys you go on a date with some guy and he's like oh yeah my dad's a hitman. i thought it was it's a great job not for me you know i'm you know i can't hold a gun steady but i really admire his get up and go and put him in the ground attitude i mean that would obviously be like a kind of run screaming situation Mm -hmm. um So you you never want to be judged by what your parents have done because parents are not anyone's choice. You guys are now in the position of being judged to some degree by the partners you chose because there was choice in the marriage where there was not choice in the parents. Mm -hmm. So when you, you know, nobody lives long enough to waste time falling in love with the wrong person. There is no, you know, even if we lived forever, that would be a bad idea, and we sure as hell don't do that. You know, the, you've, you've taken, um, you know, what could be 10% of your life,
4: mm-hmm. you know,
1: 13, 14% of your adult life, and you may have been, you know, through understandable lack of self knowledge, and someone may have been the wrong person. Nobody lives long enough to put their heart through a blender and have it recover. And there are ways to avoid these kinds of things. You ask people, Don't be shy. Your short-term spray-and-pray reproductive strategy is not going to want to ask your partner about her childhood or his childhood. Your eggs and your balls are not going to want to plumb the depths of the other person's origins because that is a long-term reproductive strategy where you're keeping yourself safe so you can fall in love with the right person rather than get lust attached to the wrong person and reproduce some of the destructions of family history. The long-term reproductive strategy, which I think leads to the most happiness and satisfaction, is to inquire boldly and with open-hearted curiosity about the other person's history and then really listen to what that person is saying and accept what they say at face value. This is really, really important. Don't Make up stuff. Oh, you know, well, I'm sure he was just saying that to put on a brave face. Or uh, I'm sure that uh, it wasn't as bad as she's talking about. That's all just egg, lust, sperm, sex, attachment, codependence. When you just make excuses, really listen to what the other person is saying Mm -hmm. and take it very seriously, what they say. If they acknowledge uh, any, any difficulties or trauma, what work they have done to deal with. Uh, trauma, what, what their goals are, what is their definition of love? I mean, you, you wouldn't get into business with someone with having no idea what their understanding is of honesty and loyalty and integrity, and you should not get involved in people when you don't have any idea what love means to them. And if you ask someone, first date material, perfectly fine. How was your childhood? What does love mean to you? What was, What does commitment mean to you? What is it that you're looking for in a relationship? And how are you going to achieve it? You know, if somebody says, I want to be an airline pilot, great. How are you going to achieve it? And if they say, oh, I don't know, uh, I guess I'll pick up a flight simulator for the Xbox and uh, a beanie propeller hat. You'd be like, "Okay, well, uh, I don't think you're going to be an airline pilot because, you know, the answer I'm looking for is, you know, read read all the books I can and uh, go sign up for flight school. That's what I'm looking for. And here's how, here's what I've done already so far. You know, if somebody's 30 and says, I want to be an airline pilot, and you say, well, what have you done? And they say, well, nothing yet. Well, that's your answer, right? Um, or somebody's 40 and says, I want to join the ballet, right? Well, that's not, right? So these, you guys are starting at the end, so to speak, because you are now really learning about each other eight years in. Is that, is that fair or is that unfair to say?
5: Yeah, yep. I think
4: it's, it's fair to- What we should have done the first six months, not the last six months.
1: No, no. First date. Not first six months. First date. First date. I mean, you don't hire someone as a surgeon, have them work at your hospital for six months, and then ask to see their credentials, right? Right. I, I, I know engineers. They go for job interviews, and they bring their engineering paperwork with them, their registration, their certificates, their education. They bring it with them. At the first interview, because if you if you're, you know, we're advertising for an engineer. If you're not an engineer, you're wasting my time. You don't hire someone and then six months later say, well, you know, you've been sitting around playing Quake all day. I wonder if you could maybe show me some paperwork and see if you're really an engineer. First interview, first job. Interview. And don't be shy about (laughs) protecting your heart. It is your most valuable asset. There are lots of smart people who are miserable, but there is no one who's happy in their heart who's miserable. Nobody who protects his heart can be broken. As Socrates said, no fundamental harm can come to a good person. And to protect your heart, you know, you see these guys in soccer games, you know, when there's a penalty kick and they're all standing, what are they doing with their hands? Do you, have you ever seen that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? They're cupping their balls, right? Well? Yep you going out into the soccer game of romance. You cup your heart. You protect your heart. You find out who is safe, who is secure. It doesn't mean that they're never going to upset you or you're never going to get upset with them or anything like that. Just as if you hire an engineer, it doesn't guarantee that that person is never going to make a mistake. Of course they will, right? But at least they're an engineer and you find that out at the beginning. But people put, you know, <laughs> this, this, this burger joint... <laughs> Won't take a burger flipper without experience, but we give people who have no experience taking care of someone else's heart and no model of how to do that, we give them our hearts and cross our fingers. Mm-hmm. Much more important than a burger flipper. Ask for experience. Or if no experience, at least ask for education. Um, right, right.
5: Actually, we we have another question about the communication, which was... the main problem Uh, uh, we've been talking about philosophy and actually talking about stuff with our friends and family about what happened let's say the example with the family Uh, so family parents will not accept that it's because of our childhood history what happened and we have different perspective with Alex. How would we talk to our family about that?
1: Well, and we argue about that. but hang on, hang on. I, I can't speak for your parents, obviously, but
5: mm-hmm.
1: my thought is that they're not entirely wrong, right? Because I'm sure you knew that childhood has an effect on adulthood, right? Mm-hmm. You both knew that, even when you were younger. Right. So, given that you both knew that childhood has an effect on adulthood, and you you both knew that you had come from somewhat dysfunctional families, did you do any work to deal with any of the effects of that dysfunction before you got into romantic relationships? Nope. Right. And so, look, I'm incredibly sorry for the dysfunctional family stuff. I I am. And, you know, I don't know enough about your family history, family situation or not to know the degree of responsibility your parents had or whatever. And, And we could talk about that perhaps another time. But what I'm trying to sort of jolt you into awareness of without trying to provoke any self attack is that. The fact that you grew up with dysfunctional families is not directly causal in the problems in your marriage. It's the dysfunction plus the avoidance of dealing with the dysfunction, right? So I've used this analogy before, which is if I have a family history of heart disease, and then I say, well, I have a family history of heart disease, so I'm going to just sit on the couch and eat Cheetos, and then I get heart disease, I say, well, you know... It was my family history that caused it. And it's like, no, it's the family history plus the Cheetos and the couch, right? Right. Whereas if I say, well, I got a family history of heart disease, man, I better, I better eat, you know, as well as humanly possible. I better go see a heart specialist. I better exercise and and better really take care of my heart. That's a different matter. So it's not the family history that primarily causes these things. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And I don't know if you have any, um, I don't know if you have anyone around you uh, or or any anything in your culture that says family history is important. I mean, I don't know if there's a Russian equivalent of Dr. Filzikov or something like that, but uh um it is at least in in the west, like in in western Europe and and North America, it has been fairly well known for you could argue at least 140 years since Freud um slightly less since Jung, or we go back to Wordsworth, the child is the father of the man, uh, you can uh, find in the West a, a long tradition of childhood has an effect on adulthood. You get it all through uh, Dickens novels. Uh, some novelists like Dostoevsky tend to repudiate this, and they have these wonderful families that birth these monsters like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. Yeah. And so there's In Russia, there seems to be – I'm thinking of Turgenia's fathers and sons or fathers and children as well. There tends to be a heavy emphasis on intellectual ideas rather than personal history being the drivers for dysfunctional personalities, particularly in young men. So I don't know if you had any exposure to the idea that trauma should be dealt with. Um, But I'm not saying your parents are not responsible. What I am saying is that if you had exposure to this idea – that you should deal with a bad childhood and didn't then to some degree it's cheetos and couch not heart disease although i'm still very sorry for all the dysfunction i'm sort of trying to give you some sense of empowerment now it's like you're not doomed to whatever happens because of the dysfunction of your childhood because there's choice choices that you can make and i say this and i say this in all humility having pissed away my 20s in bad relationships, even though I damn well should have known better, and uh, was working on self-knowledge, but did not uh, go where I needed to go. So I say this with all humility, having walked uh, a very similar road in in many ways. Uh, so, uh, but that's sort of what I learned, which I sort of wanted to pass along.
4: Right. I think people have a, like an abstract concept that yes, uh, childhood affects. Uh, your adult life, but it's not an actionable item for a lot of people. They just go with the flow and they like pretty much, I think Natasha was saying not that the parents accept responsibility for what happened to us for our marriage, but for what they did to us as children, and so they think that self-knowledge and philosophy is pretty much bullshit.
1: Yeah, so if they say we didn't do anything wrong, then that's a huge problem, and we just released a podcast on parental responsibility, which Mm -hmm. goes into this, so you can uh, listen to that in in more depth and detail if you want, but um, I you know I'm I'm incredibly sorry for all of this. You know I mean I get obviously Natasha's pain is a little bit more on the surface, and I you know I, I feel it. I mean I, I I'm incredibly sorry for this mess, this uh, this pain to the heart, this pain to the soul, and I remember once when I when a woman I dumped her, then I wanted to get back together. Then she dumped me. This is my early twenties. And I was working in a restaurant at the time as a waiter. And there was this, a bunch of Chinese guys in the back who were very funny, and would, would explain the Chinese newspaper to me every night after we were working. And there were, but there was this Mexican guy who was a, like a busboy, boy. And, I was I was kind of broken up by this by this breakup, or or by this woman not wanting me back. Wise decision on her point, uh, her part. I was not ready for that. But anyway, he just he just he just said to me, uh, "How are you? You look sad." And I said, I told him a little bit about what was happening, and he said, "Oh, my friend." And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, "How is your heart?" And that moment where this guy just ask me that basic and essential question not intellectualizing but how is your heart reminded me and and began to give me a sense of what i needed to protect what i needed to protect what i needed to keep safe what i needed to not throw over a wall and hoped it landed someplace soft how is your heart hold on to your heart keep your heart safe keep your heart, a virgin, so to speak, so that it's not too tossed around and broken by the time the right person comes along. You know, whether you could make each other into the right people or or whatever, again, that's, I think, something to work out with a therapist. But I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm, I'm amazingly and deeply sorry that this pain has come into your life. I can tell you that, you know, like most pain that is not fatal, you will emerge better people out of it, wiser people, More cautious people. You know, we are incredibly incautious with our hearts. You know, love, particularly marriage, is like a long-distance ski jump. And we just basically blindfold ourselves, step on some popsicle sticks, and throw ourselves down the slope. And it's the preparation that is necessary, particularly if we come from dysfunctional stories, history, sorry, is... um, is a challenge so i'm very sorry about what has happened to both of your hearts i'm sorry for the guilt alex that you have and the shame that you have and the regret that you have for what you've done and for what if it threatens your marriage in this way which it sounds like it does uh, scarcely seems worth it i'm sure in hindsight and i'm sorry natasha for what this has done for your heart and of course your capacity to trust yourself because when you look back over eight years or i guess seven and a half years you look back and you say um I was kind of living a lie. I I I didn't see. Why didn't I see? What What was the matter with me? What 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 eyeballs am I missing that I can't see the blindingly obvious? In hindsight, that is a a, a massive shake in self trust in in uh, our belief that we can see and keep safe from that which is necessary and and dangerous. So I'm mean, very sorry for all of this that that is happening. There is. I think a principle that I live by that I'll just share with you very briefly and then I think we'll have to do um, do another caller, but the truth is always better. God, it hurts. God, it hurts sometimes. It It is, it's like unraveling the bandages of a mummy. You don't know if there's anything left inside. Maybe there's gold and jewels or maybe there's ash and dust. But the truth is always better. And I've had times in my life where I've just, I've hated the truth. I have wanted anything but the truth. And I'm like Indiana Jones at the beginning of that film. Hey, look, I got an insight. Oh shit, there's a giant ball of truth coming my way. Run! except I never seem to make it out of the chamber. I end up like a fucking seagull shit stain on the rolling ball of truth. That's what it feels like to me. Um, The truth is a light coming down the tunnel. But this is the truth of your relationship. Infidelity, perhaps codependence, blindness, lies, manipulation, avoidance. It's not the only truth, but it is a core truth of what your relationship is or to be more precise, what your lack of relationship, how your lack of relationship shows up. And there's that line from the Alanis Morissette song, back before she started slumming it out in weeds. The truth is, I think, likened to a jagged little pill. It's actually a jagged giant pill. (laughs) But the truth often comes like um, like the uh, sergeant in Full Metal Jacket. I won't go into the profanity of it all. You can watch the clips online. But uh, the truth is, um, once you open yourself up to it, it is relentless, and it is it can be brutal, and it can be shocking, and it can be appalling, and as you found Natasha, you didn't sleep. I think you said for three weeks, with the truth, mm-hmm. and the truth is so brutal that most people retreat into the cloudy eye poking gauze of illusion and fantasy and avoidance and and so on. And uh, of course, in this conversation, the truth is always better. The truth. can feel like it is absolutely destroying you, but it is only destroying that which is false within you. And our fear, I believe, our fear is that when the truth hits us from a particular angle, that when it is done with us, there will be nothing left. That if I dismantle my lies, if I open up the mummy bandages, That there's nothing inside. That I'm just a bright, animated suit of armor with no person inside. That the defenses that were supposed to protect me have now destroyed me. And when the truth comes calling, it comes calling not as someone who wants me to join a symphony, but as a relentless vampire hunter that will put a stake through my goddamn heart. Drag me out into the sunlight where I squirm and turn and turn to dust. And evaporate. And stream into the stratosphere like a wet fart of broken history. (laughs) And so I have found that although the truth feels like it will unravel us, the truth only appears like an enemy to the lies we've been forced to live. And every time I have accepted the truth and sided with the truth, I have felt like I'm going to die sometimes because I don't know sometimes where the lies I've been forced to live end, and the truth that I didn't even know begins. But although it is an operation without anesthetic, it is literally a life-saving procedure. And I would recommend to continue to pursue the truth. Painful, of course, and I understand that. Painful, though it is. It's not so much that the truth sets you free. But the truth frees you from ghosts. It frees you from delusions. It frees you, frees you from fantasies. And the truth fundamentally is the only defense that we have against the bottomless needs of the dysfunctional. So once we have the truth, that is our reference point, not the needs of whatever other people desperately want from us. And I think that's the best shield to protect your heart with. Does does it make any sense what I'm saying or am I?
4: Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, truth is truth is liberating, but first it hits you on the balls really, really hard.
1: Yeah, I'm more than once. So, so anyway, I hope uh, if you give me a... Chance, uh, hopefully you guys will take some friendly advice and uh, go and see a good marriage counselor and try and figure out what to do next. Uh, I I would not try and chew this one alone. It would be like trying to do your own appendectomy or your own – it would be like trying to do your own dental surgery. I mean I would say hopefully you'll take some advice and and drop us a line.
4: You think we should go together as a couple or separately?
1: I would certainly go first together and, and take the advice of the therapist about I mean, I'm sure that individual counseling will help. But uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic investment. And uh, uh, no matter what happens, it will be a great investment in in what's potential in the marriage. And if there's nothing potential in the marriage, it will be a great and cheaper way to to split. And also it will do you huge amounts of good in avoiding getting into a situation like this again, should that be the case. But I certainly wish you the best. And I hope that you will call someone tomorrow.
4: So thank you very much for your sympathies to us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you.
5: Thank you.
0: All right. Up next is Matt. And Matt wrote in with a somewhat related question and said, I'm striving for a virtuous relationship, but I'm having trouble in so trouble insofar as I tend to choose people who seem honest and who seem like they know how to think but still give me some red flags, how much should I invest in these people, is this question.
3: Hmm. Hey, Steph. Hello. How's my audio? Good. Great. Okay, well, I just want to say you know, uh, thank you very much for all the work that everybody with FDR has done to make it uh, possible. Um, really life-changing stuff, and I'm a proud donator, so...
1: Thank you. Well, thank you, and I hope everyone else appreciates what uh, Matt is doing to help bring uh, what's necessary out to the people.
3: Right. Okay. So, um, I'm wondering if you have any clarifying questions about my question, or
1: yeah. So, I mean, nobody's perfect, and right. so when are there enough red flags to flee? Right. Yeah. Kind of. Um, well, what do you what do you want? What do you want out of a relationship? Right.
3: Right. You know, and you want. You know, I want the honesty. I want the virtue. Um,
1: no, no, no. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. I no. mean, more practically, what? What? Do you, I mean, do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? Oh, yeah, do you want, want to stay to together for a life? life? Are yeah, you yeah, looking yeah, for yeah. a fling? I mean, what's your goal here?
3: I'm not interested in a fling. I'm looking for. I mean, ideally, uh, a relationship, a marriage for the rest of my life.
1: Okay. And how old are you? 18. <laughs> okay, so you got a little time. You got a little time. That's good.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, the fewer people you date, the easier it will be to stay married. You think so? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't know the statistics for men, but certainly this is the case for women. That if, if you marry some, a woman who's a virgin, then your odds of the marriage lasting are over 80%. Okay. And then by the time the woman has had like a dozen or more partners, your odds go down to like 20% or 25%. It's not necessarily causal, but right. it is, definitely seems to be correlational. OK, so the, the less like <laughs> if you want to be a CEO, you've got to work your way up and you've got to have a whole bunch of jobs. You know, to be a CEO of a big company, they'll ship you around in various departments. They'll ship you around to various offices around the world. I mean, you'll be working 80 hours a week for 20 or 30 years. Right. So, you know, you want to get around like a total man whore in, in the business world in order to round out your experience. Right. But when it comes to marriage, uh, the, the less you can date. The better off you'll be.
3: Okay, I hadn't considered that. That's an interesting uh, idea. Um, Because I've been dating around, uh, not like promiscuously or anything, but I've been kind of doing the serial monogamer thing.
1: Right. And, you know, that doesn't doom you. I mean, I dated around, um, but... Um, in general, I mean, if you want to find the love of your life, I mean, why would you want to push that off? Right?
3: Right. Right. Exactly.
1: I want to win the lottery three years
3: from now. Why would I want it <laughs> exactly. now? Right. It's
1: like, i take it now. Right? It's like, might as well start working now. Um, all right. So give me, give me some, give me some red flags that you've seen. Okay. I'll
3: give you some examples. So, um, oh, and I should, <laughs> I should also mention, uh, I'm gay. I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not into the girls. All right. So, but anyway, um so in- so
1: so finding a virgin might be a <laughs> slight slightly more of a challenge is is that fair to say
3: yeah, yeah, uh especially in college and everything like that but yeah um so so one like a couple things that have come up are like, oh, I find someone who is an atheist and or maybe they're skeptical of um the involuntary family or they're skeptical or they're, and they're very cynical of the state or so on and so forth, but, Oh, they have a troubled childhood or, um, maybe they're superstitious or, you, you know, you can, mi- you can mix the variables and get all kinds of interesting, com- uh, combinations where, um, they seem very interesting at first and, uh, seem promising, but it's like you keep pushing and, and you get m- some more red flags and, you're not really sure how to uh, bring it, bring these ideas up, number one. And then number two, um, how much work uh, needs to be spent with this. Um, right.
1: So just, just to sort of break in for a sec, if, if yeah, you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. So you're looking for particular positions that someone might have that would be an indication, I assume, <laughs> of a rational thinker, right?
3: Okay. <laughs> so to clarify... And- <laughs> right, so you're you're close, but I did email Mike about this uh, back in the spring, um, and he in a nutshell, he replied um, it's not about finding somebody who has the same conclusions as you, but it's rather about finding someone who knows how to think so
1: okay and and the reason so the reason that that's important just for those right. I'm sure you get it, but for other people so let's say you find um some hunkasaurus who is." <laughs> Who's an atheist, right?
3: Right. Right. And this actually just
1: happened recently, but yeah. (laughs) Good. Okay. Okay. So, um, so he's, you know, as an, is an atheist and as an atheist, he's a materialist, which means he can't be loved for his soul, which means he does a lot of sit-ups, probably (laughs) hanging upside down from some bat cave in a disco. So... So let's say you're an atheist and he's an atheist and right. you get together and you get married and, and so on. And 10 years later, you're like, hey, we're both still atheists. <sighs> right. Right. It's not enough. Right. It's not enough. Uh, it could be six million reasons why somebody is not an atheist other than right. they've thought things through from first principles. Right. Right. So um, – you could have a lot in common with someone in terms of conclusions, and that's no basis to build a relationship. A relationship, okay. as you know, is a process. It is not a moment. It is not a conclusion.
3: Okay.
1: And so when you want to build a life with someone, they need to learn and teach. Well, oh, it's that Pet Shop Boys song. <laughs> we shall teach and learn and learn and teach. Go West, I think it is, right? And you you need to be with someone who is going to teach you new stuff, who who you can teach new stuff through the the whole of your life. And having the same conclusions as someone is not enough to teach and learn through your lives.
3: Okay. Can I challenge you a little bit on that? Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. So that's interesting to me because um, at least on – ideas that are um really important like religion right we've t- you've talked about this on the show before about how re- how religion you know m- from a moral standpoint and you know the afterlife that's that's very serious stuff that that uh someone can hold as a belief um so if if someone was religious like i was like i was brought up um but they knew how to think or they learned how to think um, it makes sense that they would convert to atheism, for example, somewhat quickly, especially um, especially considering nowadays where the arguments for atheism, I think, are really well accessible.
1: Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Look, I know I, I get that for sure. I get that for sure. But also somebody may convert to atheism for emotional reasons. Okay. Rather than out of a dedication to reason, you want them to put up a good fight because it shows loyalty to their prior beliefs in the same way that you want them to have loyalty to you as as a lover. Right. As a as a husband, you want time. them.
3: You want them to be a, you, you want it to be like a really hard challenge for them.
1: Well, I, yeah, I'm not saying artificially hard, but let's say that that over the course of half an hour, you talk someone out of religion That's not necessarily a great thing. Okay.
0: Sure. Now, okay. I can see it, it
1: may from. be. Yeah. But I think, I, I think that you want to make sure that the person like, is like, oh, yeah, you're right. I guess that doesn't make any sense. I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. That would be a bit alarming, right? Right. Because that, that to me would be a red flag, that the person can be talked out of a right, lifelong right. belief Without putting up a fight, it means, what, have you never thought about this stuff before? It only takes half an hour. My God, you're 20 years old. You've been right. raised in this the last 15 years. And they're like, boom, it's gone. That would be kind of weird to me. And then if they said, well, I guess I don't believe anymore. Uh, I guess we're done. And I don't need to talk about this again. That would be a huge red flag. Well, of course, you need to talk about it again. Because uh, a, a growing sense of skepticism towards religion is really only the beginning of a very long journey, right? Okay. In other words, the journey then goes to, okay, well, so if this stuff doesn't make any sense and it doesn't take a long time for me to realize that it doesn't make any sense, what does that say about the people who raised me? What does that say about the the priests? What does it say about my extended family? What does it say about the people in my Christian club or my Islamic club or whatever? What does it say about everyone who is around me? Have they Do they know this but they're not told me? Have they never even been curious enough to, to read the other arguments? I mean – it is the beginning of a very challenging conversation that goes very deep. And so I would want someone I'm talking about with religion to give it their best shot. And if they folded very quickly and felt that the topic was done, I would view that as a huge red flag. In other words, either they just want to be they weren't really religious and they're just giving or or they're placating me or, you know, they have some some hidden reason for wanting to abandon religion uh, or they don't. They're not emotionally smart enough to understand that people are religious because they're raised religious. And if they fall away from religion, that is a huge challenge to their personal relationships. In other words, and they're now going to be secretly gay and secretly religious secretly atheist i don't know maybe they're openly gay and secretly atheist mm-hmm. but um uh, are they going what effects like so the reason i want someone to fight is in in a way if somebody's your age if somebody's religious and they're fighting me on religion and because i've got a whole podcast and video out there called god is really the fear of others or god is the fear of others they're fighting to to retain their relationship with their family Right. Th- that's the emotional driver. Right, right, right. I don't believe too many people really care about this imaginary sky ghost. What they're doing is they're saying, I can't accept atheism because if I accept atheism, this causes massive problems in my personal relationships. Right. Like if, if you if – let's say you had a friend who was in the closet, right? I don't know. Maybe you do, but – Mm-hmm. If you had a friend who was in the closet and you said, you know, man, you got to be honest. You got to, you know, don't hide. It's not, nothing to be ashamed of, whatever, right? And the person said, you know, you're right. Um, I'm just going to be out. And then they went, okay, we can chat about something else now. What would right. you think?
3: Be like, wait. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to be, like,
1: concerned? Yeah, a L- little quick of a turnaround there. <laughs> you know, you spin the wheel. That doesn't mean the super tanker's turning around right about right, now. Right, right. You know, especially if they're. Uh, I don't know if they were from some homophobic family or some homophobic right. uh, culture or something, uh, that would be, uh, well, maybe a, you know, like, okay, so I'm glad that you, but, you know, let's not brush past all the next bits, which are pretty significant, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's the same thing with, uh, with, with statism, right? So uh, if somebody yeah. is a statist, then I would assume it will be conversations that will go on for a long time. Okay. And and they should bring, you know, bring their best and and fight hard and, this could go on you know i think i said gosh i think it was in 2010 i did a speech at libertopia and i said uh, my particular gauge is i'll do months but i won't do years you'll do months but not years okay yeah i I, you know when it comes to talking to people about statism Mm -hmm. because i look i mean i just i don't have years right you know to 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 speak to people because if after years they haven't conceded anything fundamental then they're just basically they're like a person from porlock to waste my time and prevent me from talking to people who i might actually be able to reach right mm-hmm. so i mean if, if you if you had a friend who was for some reason had some problem with you being gay you probably would give that friend months i don't know if you'd give them a couple of years hoping that they'd turn around <laughs> right
3: i wouldn't give them very I, I don't know if i'd give them months even
1: yeah, I mean, if for whatever reason it was a big problem in their cultural community or whatever. But so I, you know, to to me, the positions themselves are not the most, even remotely important. And positions can be a very big distraction. I have far less in common with many atheists than I do with many Christians. Right. Because if they're atheists and determinists and communists, liberals, yeah, (laughs) or whatever, right, right. Then I, I'm going to have more in common with a Christian who accepts free will, who understands the necessity of virtue, who believes in the strength of the family, who is skeptical of the power of the state, who believes in spontaneous social organization and all that. I will have much more in common with that Christian than uh, I would with uh, you know, a, a heavy left politically correct atheist. So Okay. Makes sense. So so it, it really is a a process. A um a marriage or a lifelong partnership is not like a join the dots thing. Right and so you, oh tick or tick the checkbox or whatever it, it, it is a it is a process that that goes on very deeply and because there's always new things that come up in life like if you guys end up having surrogates or adopting kids or whatever if you get get married if you know then you got parenting well so you have atheism in common that doesn't mean you both have mm-hmm. parenting philosophies in common <laughs> right I don't
3: and so get hung on, up on right? the atheism so, forever but yeah
1: yeah, and then, you know, as you get older, doubtless what is it? Billy Crystal says, uh, you know, you get into your forties, you have an operation. You'll call it a procedure, but it's an operation. <laughs> and that certainly was true of me, my ex car is still visible. And um how how do you deal with illness? How do you deal with, you know, brushes with mortality? I mean, you're eighteen, so what the hell do you care about that stuff now? But <laughs> but it comes, you know, yeah. you'll remember this in thirty years and Hopefully, I'll still be around taking calls, and you can say, "Hey, man, I got a weird lump in it, right?" But um, there's, and then you know, there's aging, and and then there's grandkids, and then there's you know, what do you do when you retire? I mean, there's lots of things that that you need to have the same approaches, the same methodologies, rather than starting off with the same positions. Just focus on on you want to get engaged in a lifelong conversation where you're exploring new information, sharing new thoughts and ideas, going through new experiences and being able to process them together. And um, any position that you think is a salvation is probably a restriction.
3: Okay. I'm not sure what you mean by that.
1: What I mean is, so if you say, oh, that person is an atheist, great. Uh... You know, then what you've done is you've done a checkbox Rather than explore, well, why are they an atheist? How did this happen? Uh, and so on, right? Somebody okay. can be raised an atheist and be completely irrational about atheism. Okay. Right? Like, so I, uh, I, I am not a Zoroastrian, even though I hear it makes you be a great singer, but I'm not <laughs> a Zoroastrian. Now, if somebody would say to me, why are you not a Zoroastrian? I wouldn't have a rational answer. I mean, other than some general religious stuff, but nothing particular, nothing specific. So somebody could just be raised an atheist, or they may be an atheist because their parents are devout communists, or they may be left anarchists, or they may be, I don't know, right?
4: Mm
1: -hmm. And if you've got a checkbox called, oh, we have an area of compatibility called atheism, then it's actually a restriction until you find out why and how they believe what they believe. And also, if they're an atheist and it's cost them nothing to be an atheist, you know, like if you're a democrat and work at cnn you're not exactly putting your career on the line (laughs) um and so so if you know if they were sort of raised in you know lefty circles where everybody makes fun of of christians and and so on without sort of trying to understand the value of the judeo-christian tradition and so on and then then it then the their atheism is not a mark of any particular intellectual integrity or any particular challenge. In other words, if they were to speak intelligently and sympathetically about Christianity, if they would then be mocked, then the fact that they're atheists doesn't, I don't think, mean much in terms of integrity and, and courage and philosophy. It's just, well, you know, I grew up everyone was an atheist and, and anybody who said anything positive about like, I remember, let me just sort of give you a tiny example. So, I mean, yeah. I've been an atheist since I was single digits, I think. <laughs> and I remember I worked at Pizza Hut and there was a guy there who was very well versed in Christian arguments. And he gave the argument about the improbability of the combinations necessary to produce life combinations of chemicals and electricity and energy and, and other things, but the, gods the primordial probable, super argument. Right? Yeah. So, he, and he had all of these arguments and I thought they were actually very good arguments. And, uh, you know, there was no internet back then and I didn't go to the library and start researching it all because we just had this conversation and he had some good arguments and I thought, well, that's refreshing You know, there wasn't sort of burn in hell, young Steph. It was like, you know, here's some... And I remember, you know, most of my friends were atheists. And uh, one or two weren't, but most of my friends were atheists. And I went to them and I said, you know, this guy gave me these really good arguments. And tell me what you guys think. And they just went, oh, come on, that's bullshit. Right? Right. And I thought, that's not good. Guys, (laughs) come on, these are good arguments. You know, just... That's just bullshit is not an intellectually honest (laughs) position, right? Um, So I did not think like, so we had atheism in common, but we didn't have thinking in common, which is why I'm not really friends with those people anymore. But, and it wasn't just that. It was like a bunch of things where I've always been interested in, in good arguments, you know, if they go against my position, they they go against my position. You know, I will read Ann Coulter's uh, attacks on, or uh, criticism or skepticism on uh, evolution, and and I will read the arguments um, for uh, uh, for for religion, and of course I've gone through a lot of these arguments uh, in in undergraduate and graduate school, and I'm just I'm intrigued by good arguments, and I am quite interested when I get stymied, you know, like I don't have a I don't have a good uh, <laughs> I don't have a good good response to that, and that that happens a lot. Right. And that's how I grow. I mean, I thought that the arguments for anarchism were completely ridiculous until I realized I didn't have a good position. And um, so I had more in common with the guy who was criticizing evolution than I did with my atheist friends because he was making good arguments and they weren't. And that's what I mean when I say, so if there's something which is a compatibility in conclusions, it probably is a restriction, i.e. I could not bring intelligent arguments to bear on my atheist friends. It was restriction. It was a restriction. It it was something that was a supposed compatibility, but because it was compatibility of conclusions and not methodology, it was a restriction on the topics. Does that make any sense?
3: Yeah, that does. You really have to uh, ask people and really explore what they really think, um, even if they have the same
1: conclusion as you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, There's lots of people in Damascus, but they didn't all come there for the same reason, right? (laughs) Some people, you know, are on a trip to Mecca and some people just got dumped out of the back of a van, right? Right.
3: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Steph.
1: Okay, well, I uh, appreciate that, and uh, let us know how it goes. Uh, yeah, I'll your, definitely uh, bring it to the table
3: for sure. Keep your balls close and sure.
1: your your heart even closer. Uh, yeah. keep it keep it guarded, keep it protected, so that it still has juice when the love of your life comes along. Okay. And uh, thanks thanks to Mike, thanks to of course all the callers. It's nice to be back on video. For those who are just listening to the audio, my God, you missed some calisthenics and some incredibly unlife gymnastics. Actually, you missed nothing. Just a talking head in a gray room. So have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. We will talk to you Saturday night and, uh, yeah, hopefully get the presentation for Germany recorded tomorrow. Um, I have to avoid my clichés, in other words, screaming out every German-sounding name. Uh, And um, ftrurl.com slash donate to help out the show. We run because you help. And uh, if you can help out, we are massively, massively grateful. And uh, uh, everyone who gets the show because of your support is grateful. This stuff changes lives. And thank you all so much for your support. Talk to you in a few days.